Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you looking to take your media strategy to the next level and make impact with millions of customers? Walmart Connect harnesses the massive reach of America's number one retailer. They can help you connect more meaningfully with Walmart's 139 million weekly online and in-store customers to find the right audience for your message. They use Walmart's proprietary customer purchase data to help you precisely target even niche audiences at scale. Visit walmartconnect.com today to see how they can help you find the customers you want at the scale you need. Hey, I'm sure by now you're aware of programmatic ad tech, but what is it exactly? Programmatic advertising, in some ways, is really anytime you're using software and data to make your media buying decisions. We see it in display ads, in CTV, programmatic digital out of home, and of course, audio. And new ad technologies are coming out every day. Actually, what you're hearing right now is a type of programmatic ad, or at least a hybrid. It's not programmatic in the sense that a piece of software is buying this ad right now in a real-time bidding auction, but it is programmatic in the sense that it was bought through a buying platform that matched the advertiser to this podcast. And who is the advertiser? Grapeseed Media. When it comes to the world of programmatic, they're one of the companies that knows the most about the latest advances in all programmatic. Their whole mission is programmatic that lets you play with the giants. They open the door and walk you through the entire programmatic landscape. They're the closest thing possible to an in-house programmatic team without the expense and trouble of an actual in-house team. They're completely tech agnostic, which means they sit on all ad technologies, including emerging ones, like the platform they use to serve this host red ad. If you're curious to take your programmatic further, reach out to them at grapeseedmedia.com. And thank you, Grapeseed Media, for being a sponsor of this podcast. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, a show where we discuss trends, marketing, pop culture, and retail media innovation, because at the end of the day, everything is an ad. I'm community editor Luz Corona here with my friend, colleague, wonderful human being, Adweek's Europe brand editor, Rebecca Stewart. Bex, the countdown to the holidays is on. How are you holding up? Uh, I'm okay. I feel like my body is in 2023, but my mind is in 2024. Um, so yeah, I just told it on in there, Liz. How are you? Yeah, same. I just feel like spoken like a true working mother. I feel like that's where my head is always at. So yeah, solidarity, sister. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, this this is going to cheer me up. This is going to be a fun one today. Yeah, because joining us today are new members of the Adweek Podcast Network family. We recently introduced The Garage, Tools for Retail Media Innovation, a podcast hosted by Evan Havorka, Vice President of Product and Innovation, and Dan Massimino, Director of Marketing and Communication from Albertson's Media Collective. Guys, how are you doing? Welcome to the family. What's going on? <laughs> What's going on? I love the energy. It's so important for our podcast. And and I have a feeling you guys provide very entertaining show. Oh, how are you both doing? Evan and I are very much uh, in the belief that if you are if we're not having fun, we will make it fun, regardless of venue or appropriateness. <laughs> I like so that. Strap love in. That. Here we go. <laughs> 
yeah. general browbeat you until <laughs> well, you're having fun. I love that. Well, first, you know, we yeah. want to know a little bit about you before we jump into the podcast. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about yourselves and your work with Albertsons Media Collective. I was able to catch a glimpse of you guys on stage at the Retail Media Summit in um, Minneapolis. So it was great to see you there. But would love for our listeners to get to know you a little better. Evan, I don't know if you want to kick it off. Oh, he has rank, so we'll let him. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Evan Avorica, thank you for for having us this morning. Um, I've been at uh, the the collective, the Albertsons Media Collective, for two years. Um, previous to that, I did a seven year stint at Roundell Target's Retail Media Collective, and then prior to that, I, I did uh, ten years at Target Marketing, building out products and channels for the the brand uh, marketing teams. But the collective has been a, a wonderful journey. You know, we we entered the game a little late. Um, building it in-house. We, we used a third party in the beginning era. And now uh, within the last two years plus, we've brought everything in-house, turned it into a full-fledged um, mature retail media solution, as you would expect a company of Albertson's size to do. And uh, I was brought in to, to lead our, our product and innovation track. So very fortunate to be part of that, almost a startup within, a, within an enterprise journey. It's been wild to see how quickly we've been able to manifest really groundbreaking products through partnership, through internal innovation, We've got some of the best engineering leadership and uh, partner leadership across the company that I've that I've ever got a chance to work with. So super excited to continue building and innovating with the rest of retail media, uh, becoming a hot topic, which is super fun. Keeps my job really interesting. Um, and probably the best thing I, I get to experience on a day to day basis is this garage concept, which we're going to get into today. But really rolling up our sleeves, putting our humble hats on, and building new solutions, new products, new capabilities with other partners, right? Because we can't do this alone. No one piece of, of any part of the media product works in a silo, be that the publisher, the advertiser, the retail media network. So we get to, I get to bring all those folks together and uh, figure out how we're going to best solve problems. Love that. And yeah, I, I completely agree. Retail media, hot topic this year. Dan, what about you? Well, I've been with Albertsons a little bit longer than my friend Evan. I've been around for pushing 10 years now. I started over in shopper marketing uh, and cut my teeth on on the GMHBC side, the non-food side, working with partners to bring their marketing to life and uh, bring programming to our shoppers in, in a relevant context. Uh, when we launched Albertsons Media Collective, I decided to make a bit of a shift. And, and because, uh, because I'm a bit of a storyteller, I decided to try my hand in the marketing world and the communication world. I've got uh, a lineage uh, in education, actually. I was a fifth grade teacher. I worked my way over to Boise State University, go Broncos, and was teaching teachers on a really uh, innovative project over there that that it, it's a winding, meandering path my career, but I found my way over to Albertsons and through what I learned teaching, uh, began to really dive into the marketing side of the business and telling the story of Albertsons and Albertsons Media Collective and bringing it to life in a fun and authentic way. So I sit here now uh, and and try to continue telling that story on this this latest iteration of the garage within our podcast. Um, but it's been an incredible journey, and I'm really uh, thankful for being here and and thank you for having us on today. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you were a teacher. You already have stories I to was. tell. So. Oh. <laughs> I, yeah. I got stories that could curl your hair. We'll get a drink and I'll, I will relay them to you at another time. I love that. Oh, that's great. Doing the Lord's work, teachers. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. Well, I, I would love to know, like, 
how did this podcast idea come about? Before we get into the name, because the name is very interesting, you know, how did the podcast idea come about? Like, what's the goal? What are you hoping that listeners will get out of the garage? Well, I think we need to trace it back. I'm going to get it to Ev- let Evan jump in. Uh, we need to trace it back to the genesis of the garage, and that's really where Evan's brain power comes in. So, Evan, tell the story of where it came from, the actual garage, and then we'll get into where we're at today. Yeah, I love the the storytelling that you two are bringing on top of this, because that really wasn't the intent of the original manifestation of the garage. You know, growing up in small town Canada, uh, really rural uh, type of living, a lot of the things that needed to get fixed, like, let's say my motorbike, maybe I was hard on it, um, just needed to get figured out on your own, right? We didn't have access to um, mechanics or or the, the traditional things people have access to in the city. So a lot of it was, you know, going out to the old junk pile, looking through the scrapyards, putting together some sort of solution to get that bike or truck or whatever the engine was that needed to get fixed, get that thing fixed. And it was really just, uh, you know, talking to neighbors, talking to myself, a little bit of research, figuring out that problem on your own uh, was was the beginning part of my life. And then as I uh, matured, arguably not enough, but as I matured and, and kind of got into a, a family situation, that moved into the garage, my, my actual shop in my physical house. And, um, you know, started to invite people over if we wanted to work on electronics. You know, Raspberry Pi became a pretty big thing many years ago. And uh, always curious about how all these things work. And so created a space um, in a garage. Think of like, I got old hardwood floors from Craigslist back in the day. I've got some old leather recliners. I think one I picked up off the side of the road. I've got all my tools and a TV screen and a whiteboard uh, out in there with all my tools and, and shop equipment. And so friends would come over, maybe have a couple cocktails. We'd work on whatever random unimportant project that was the hot topic of the day, um, including building like a bubble hockey table, fixing a lawnmower, like you name it, it it's come through that shop. Uh, and as I got into work and wanted to kind of recreate some, some of that innovation space, especially during COVID, I started to invite coworkers over or, or vendors and partners to help solve business problems. And it was just such a nice, relaxed environment. I... Um, fell into it. It wasn't like an intentional type of thing. It was just really cool, really relaxed. People felt very comfortable. We had the time and space to really tackle a problem, whiteboard out all of our Lego blocks, figure out how we can build our Lego blocks together into a new model. And um, as I moved over to the collective, one of the first meetings I took was in the garage with uh, our our, uh, first podcast for this this, um, series. And we tackled self-serve audience and measurement for the retail media space. And um, you know, we're just continuing to build on that, figuring out new companies, new new problems to solve, and bringing all those people together into the garage to do so. I love that. Sorry, I just want to cut in with a comment. I I actually I have a question. Wasn't Amazon also created in like a garage? I felt like it was so <laughs> on topic too, right? Am I am I remembering that? <laughs> There's a couple. <laughs> there's been a couple, yeah. Hewlett Packard maybe was the first. Uh, there's a lot of Silicon Valley companies that started in a garage. I think Apple uh, also started in a in a West Coast garage, and then of course Nirvana. Correct. Oh, right. Of course. Did so they everybody's a rock a star. Garage. Yeah. Like, like all, all good, good bands. bands, they started in a garage. <laughs> you know, and and just listening to Evan tell the story a bit of the the physical manifestation of the garage, there were a lot of folks that were jealous to not have been there. Uh, and and not have seen it, not have partaken in several cocktails. He says, maybe. Yeah, no, there were cocktails involved (laughs) in the garage. But what we did then was think about how we could bring that to life within within the space that we've got and get our messaging out. Um, Help the industry really is what what the Garage Podcast is all about. It's it's really about bringing together some very innovative people, forward-thinking people, and 
for goodness sakes, forcing a bright spot if we have to. Force a bright spot, replicate and scale, uh, and leave the industry in a better spot that we found it. So we're we're in the the seven, excuse me, eight episode series. Uh, and what we're trying to do is build these pillars towards what we're calling retail media nirvana. If you have these pillars in place, then you're going to be able to take those next steps to retail media 2.0, 3.0, and beyond. And that's really what the premise is behind what we're doing in the garage right now. Mm -hmm. So, so smart. And I, I love the origin story. And this is just a huge space for CMOs. Like every CMO I speak to is um, investing in retail media, but they're still learning about it and still curious. So I think this is a, a brilliant idea. Um, in terms of what listeners can expect from like the next few episodes, you've spoke about some of the guests and topics you're going to cover, but can you maybe go into a little more detail on what we can anticipate? Evan, can you maybe start? Yeah, I, I loved how you teased that. There is no single vendor out there or partner who can solve these problems. So when you think about that CMO, we feel the same challenges too, right? We have great ideas, but great ideas in a silo um, often don't pan out. So we're open to that collaboration. We're happy to put our humble hat on and, and show the good, the bad, the ugly of, of our capabilities and uh, figure that out with the CMO or whomever the innovators are of, of the brands and uh, ad platforms. But the first episode, probably the best uh, example of this coming to life, um, this would be about 18 months ago. Ben Sylvan was uh, in Minneapolis. That's where I live now. Again, starting off my career in a big way at Target. Um, he was in town uh, representing the trade desk and really looking to expand data partnerships. And so uh, he brought a couple of his folks into the garage. We whiteboarded through you know, what, what would best-in-class self-service look like. I've heard through many, many conversations at Roundell, you know, just give us your data, just give us access to your assets. And in a privacy safe um, future and, and past, that was just never a possibility. So introduce the concept of clean room and where the trade desk is headed with their, with their privacy first interface. We were able to actually design in that garage with whiteboards, maybe a couple cocktails at the end, but first with whiteboards, uh, how we can bring data safe access to some of our most sensitive um, assets and do it in a way that that satisfies the need of those progressive CPGs and agencies, uh, but honors the the ever increasing scrutiny around customer data, uh, privacy and security, which which we put first into all of our products and uh, whiteboarded it out, came up with this idea of autonomous access to audience and measurement in a way where a, a client can use their seat. Um, they can use their rate card. They can use their publisher networks. We, as the collective, feel like we should wear the, the right hat for the right job. And so in that situation, we don't have to own and control the end-to-end the -end marketing state, right? We can enable because this is going to be something maybe for a national brand or a large agency. They've got all the tools. They're just missing a few pieces of, of our assets. And so it's a very clever and safe and uh, first-to-market way to solve self-serve retail media so that's episode one and then dan and any favorite episodes coming up in this series we, yeah we've got some great ones so so as we started to build out the, the the series list and the pillars of of the seven pillars to retail media nirvana um we laid it out in a structure that starts with as evan said and ben sylvan with the trade desk and, and thinking about creating you have to manifest these spaces for innovation both within your brain and physically as well um, so we talk you have to delay the groundwork for that we then talk about taking uh, a, a complete inventory of your assets as a retailer what uh, what do you have that you can deploy uh, right now and how could you think about it in a different way we talk about our role as a retailer uh, within an rmn space what should we be doing 
What do we need to let some partners do? We jump into growing up. I mean, there's been a lot going on in the retail media space and, and we're all, you know, infants or adolescents right now in it. And we need to figure out what those next steps are towards adulthood. We definitely jump into measurement uh, and we know that if you don't measure it, it doesn't matter. So we talk about the importance of doing that responsibly, ethically uh, and, and in the best possible way that we can. We're going to touch on marketing and the role that marketing plays in being able to tell your story uh, and then really talking about partnerships and how we can leverage each other because who's the smartest person in the room? The room is uh, and leverage each other's strengths and really go further together. So we've got all that coming up in, in all these episodes that you're going to be able to listen to and we're very excited to bring it all to, you, to all the listeners. That's so great. And I agree, Dan, like, I feel like this is in the infancy stage. So um, definitely, there's such very much. Yeah, so. there's such an appetite to learn more. And what better way than to listen to your podcast? Uh <laughs> right? I mean, if we if we can't figure it out, then a lot yeah. of others can. But we're gonna try. We're all gonna go on yeah. this journey together. <laughs> well, I want to thank you both so much uh, for coming on and talking to us again. Welcome to the family and congrats on the podcast. Thank you. And um, I'm sure our listeners will enjoy. Thank you both. Appreciate you. Thank, Thank you, guys. You. Thank you very and much. listeners, without further ado, we'll jump into the first episode of The Garage with Ben Sylvan from The Trade Desk. Enjoy. Ready to unlock the full potential of your media spend? Whether you're looking to launch a new product, build your brand, or help increase sales this quarter, Walmart Connect helps brands make an impact with precise targeting, powerful analytics, and the reach of America's number one retailer. Walmart Connect offers solutions for advertisers of all sizes on and off Walmart's digital properties and in their stores. From cost-effective sponsored search and self-serve display ads on Walmart's site and apps to connected TV and off-site media across web and social to in-store activations and live events, Walmart Connect can help you deliver the right content to the right Walmart customer at the right step of their shopping journey. And Walmart Connect's closed-loop measurement means they can track the full impact of your campaign on sales, not just on Walmart's site and app, but also in-store. For some campaigns, they can even provide rest-of-market data that tracks the impact on sales at other retailers. Visit walmartconnect.com today to find out how you can start connecting with Walmart's 139 million weekly online and in-store customers. Walmart Connect. More than media. Meaningful connections. Hello and welcome to The Garage. We are so happy to have you alongside us for this new journey in our podcast form to bring you our unique brand of innovation. The team and I are so grateful that you take a short amount of time today in your already busy schedule to talk shop with us in the retail media world. So grab a stool, a milk crate, a box, I don't care, lean on the tool bench and get ready to get your hands dirty with Evan and I. My name's Dan Massimino. I'm here alongside, as I said, my great friend and colleague, the master of the maker space, the prince of this podcast, the brains behind the garage, Evan Havorka. Come on, Evan, come on in. Thank you for that gracious intro, Dan. Happy to be here today. Glad you're here. As I said, I'm Dan Massimino, D-Mass as I'm called, DJ Diesel. if I'm DJing my kids' middle school dances. I'm just here to maintain order and structure, so God help us. I've got over a decade in the grocery industry, from bagging groceries to building shopper marketing programs, to now doing marketing for Albertsons Media Collective. And now I'm here with you to learn alongside some of the best and brightest the industry's got to offer. Let's talk a little bit about format here. So we at The Collective believe wholeheartedly in moving our industry forward. And so in order to do that, there has to be this commitment in finding or sometimes forcing bright spots, learn fast, fail fast, 
and evolve, scale and replicate those as quickly as possible. So to do so, we've created a one-of-a-kind makerspace where some of the greatest minds in the industry come together, geek out on retail media solutions, and help unlock the best version of retail media and what it can be. And now we want to share that wealth of information with you. We got a lot to do today, a lot to get to, so let's get started. Now, as you may hear, Evan is not alone in his space. So Evan, heads up, if you didn't know, you're not alone in your space. There's somebody else there with you. It sends to presence. Yeah. Our guest in the garage today has been called by some the complete package of strategic digital marketing and breakthrough content development with unmatched work ethic. Man, that's an endorsement. Ben Sylvan from the Trade Desk. Ben, come on in. Ben's the GM of Data Partnerships at The Trade Desk uh, with what, a little around three years now, Ben? Yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me. I don't know who described me as that, but I, I appreciate it. Um, it's a little hyperbolous, but I'll take it. Um, take yeah, it, man. Been, own it. I'll, I'll own it. I'll own it today. Yeah, I've been to the Trade Desk for uh, more than two and a half years. I'm vice president of data partnerships for the Trade Desk, and I'm really excited to be here. Our partnership with Albertsons has been wonderful, and I, I feel very privileged to be here with you guys. We're thrilled to have you. I'm not going to lie. I did a little bit of, of light LinkedIn stocking, so... Northwestern Georgetown and University of Colorado at Boulder. A few schools that have had some sports in the headlines lately. Just a couple. I mean, yeah. hot take. Hot take on, on <laughs> primetime real quick. This is the worst the CU is going to be. So, you know, they're, they're just getting started. They've won 4X more games this year than, than they did last year. And it's just the beginning of the journey. Although I, I, I do have some concerns as he's not going to be a long timer in Boulder. There are some teams in, in Florida that I worry may come calling, and it's where he's from, and a little bit bigger programs than than CU. But fingers crossed that the, it's just beginning. I like. It. I mean, not not a hot take. It's warm. It's lukewarm. I like it. <laughs> but we appreciate you being here so much. We're gonna we're gonna pick your brain, get a lot of information out of you today, and really want to thank you for being here and thank all of our listeners again for tuning in to our podcast. So Evan, without further ado, tell the world about you a little bit. Yeah, well, thanks for the intro, and Ben, thanks for joining us again today. That concludes our sports moment. We'll uh, try to kick off every episode with a little inside sports, maybe a little localized feedback from our guests. But we're super excited to have you as our as our first and uh, premier guest uh, to kick off our, our episodes, um, which is apropos because, yeah, so my journey, Dan, to your point, I've, I've been in retail for 20 years. I built brand products and managed brand channels for Target uh, as, as the brand uh, marketing team. And then moved into retail media slowly about nine years ago as that business started to just take its early shapes before it, it turned into Roundell. But I was there for that journey up until two and a half years ago when I moved over to the Albertsons Media Collective. Um, they were just going through a, a big in-housing, re-platforming re of their retail media network, bringing everything in-house, building from scratch, getting partnerships built out, which is exactly where we started. Our partnership journey was with Ben at the Trade Desk. And the other thing I bring to our to our team, um, VP of, of product and innovation, is that innovation and collaboration side. So super passionate. This is my lifelong journey before I even started working, tinkering, playing, building, constructing, also a lot of breaking, but really in service of education and collaborative problem solving. So sometimes alone, sometimes with friends. That evolved into workplace experiences as well. And so we'll talk a little bit about that garage. Dan, if you want me to get into that now, happy to do so. I think so. Let's, you know, we've got this killer title for this wonderful podcast that we're doing, The Garage. And a lot of folks out there are probably wondering where in the heck that came from and how does that apply to retail media networks in, in 
in totality. So give us a little uh, little bit of flavor into where the garage came from. Absolutely. So there's the mystique of the garage has preceded the media collective. It's been around on the West Coast for some time for other companies. But the concept is really something all RMNs and any ad tech company should adopt, and some have. In our case, you know, really collaboration, partnership, co-design, co-ownership is, is core to what, what the Retail Media Collective. The Albertsons Media Collective is really here to be that collaborator, partner, co-op garden, premier place for people to come and build and design together. And I hope other RMNs pick that up, Retail Media Networks, because going it alone, building silos, has been the beginning of the RMN journey, and it creates a lot of friction for adoption. So we, we use the garage as a place to say, hey, we don't know everything. We can't build everything, right? Trade Desk has had decades of, of work, well, over a decade of hard work going into Trade Desk platforms, right? Are we going to be able to compete with that? Should we consider competing with that? Or should we hold hands and ask for a, a very transparent, humble, you know, co-branded way of building products together? And that's exactly what the garage provided. Ironically, Ben was our first guest in the garage as well um, when I joined the collective. He came in with his team. We designed, whiteboarded, had some lunch, talked through good, bad, uglies of, of how this product could come to life. And it was wonderful. So there were, the goal was to basically say, can we do something better together? So we didn't put a business a fiscal forecast against it. We really just took customer feedback. We took our creative minds, put them to work on a whiteboard, and came up with our, our autonomous audience and measurement collaboration. But beyond just that product, it's really the mindset, Dan, really. And that's what the podcast is here to reinforce. We can't get smarter if we're not learning and growing and building with our smart partners. And that goes the other direction too. Retailers have a ton of merchandise data. They know how a lot of that CPG product moves throughout the country. We can bring that to get to light in a bigger way um, and help that industry, the ad tech industry, grow and evolve, just like they can help us bring our products to life. So it's all about the spirit of transparency, collaboration, and we bundle all that and call it our co-op garden approach. That's awesome, Evan. Yeah, I think that that, that spirit of, of innovation, forward thinking, makerspace, not being the being humble enough to not be the smartest in the room, but letting the room be the smartest. And so in the spirit of that, we've got Ben here. Ben, as you think through your time in the career, in your career, excuse me, describe any aha moments that led to some kind of bright spot creation, if you could. If you think back, what what were the what were the ingredients, if you will, for for some kind of bright spot to be formed? Yeah, it's a great question. Be- before I answer that, I want to give some context because I think that'll help with with my answer. So, just for those of you unfamiliar with the Trade Desk, we're the largest independent digital buying platform that's used by advertisers and their media agencies to use data and decisioning to inform their digital media buys. It's also known as programmatic advertising. So, we're a platform to buy programmatic advertising. Our platform can buy on, on many formats that we all know and, and love. So that includes display, includes mobile, and it includes connected television, audio you know, platforms, games, and so on and so forth. And within my role, I focus on the intersection of data from retail companies like Albertsons, as well as a measurement and connected television. My, my focus is on making sure the right ad is going to the right person at the right time. So audience targeting is a big part of that, right? Making sure you're reaching people who buy certain products. And so with that context, I want to kind of take you back where I started my career. I started my career actually as a a writer and an editor, and I worked for ESPN for a long time. And if you kind of rewind 15, 16 years, every day on ESPN.com was all about Tom Brady and and the New England Patriots. They were winning a lot of Super Bowls, you know, and he was dating a lot of supermodels. And it was an interesting time. 
if if you're into that sort of thing, if you're into football, if you're into Tom Brady, and I'm who isn't? Base- I mean, and and who isn't? Right. Well, so I'm not. And, and, <laughs> oh, and come that's on. Sort of the story, right? Well, so I mean, <laughs> but you had parallels with Tom Brady dating the supermodels, being super famous, right? I, I mean, get other it. than I get our it. parallel lives, yes. that wasn't sort of my yeah. my, my focus, yeah. right? I, I'm a big baseball and basketball guy. You know, every Denver Nuggets article that was posted at, at that time, it was, you know, Carmelo Anthony era. I would I would eat those articles up. And I always had a, a belief, like, why are we curating ESPN.com with Tom Brady every day, right? Why does everything have to be the New England Patriots when there are, you know, Four other big, you know, sport leagues in, in the U.S. This is before soccer had taken off globally, right? There are, you know, 30 other NFL teams. There are 30 NBA teams. And we were collecting all this data on consumer behavior, right? We knew at ESPN that I was going to read the Denver Nuggets articles. I was going to read the New York Mets. I'm a big Mets fan, right? We knew what all of our consumers were, were, were reading, what, what videos they were watching, Yet we were kind of curating what we thought was the most relevant news. And so it's a big leap for an editorial company like ESPN to, you know, completely turn over content curation to, 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 to data or to, to machine learning, to AI. You know, there, it's an editorial company. I, and I understood that. I was on the editorial side. I was, I was one of the lead editors. But I started going to this idea of, well, if we can't do content curation – we should at least be doing advertising curation, right? We shouldn't have everybody who goes to ESPN.com be getting ads for, say, Gatorade, right? When Gatorade was trying to target athletes. A lot of sports fans are, are the antithesis of athletes, right? A lot of sports fans are athletes, right? But we should really be making sure that the right ads go into the right person at the right time. Mm-hmm. And so at, at around the same time, I started seeing ad choices, um, little buttons show up on our, on, our, on our 300 by 250s on ESPN.com. And I didn't know what programmatic advertising was, but I was smart enough to know that if ad choices was the sort of the, you know, the, the, the group that was serving the ads, that our sales team wasn't selling them and that something was, you know, amiss. And so the aha moment I had there was actually not what led me here directly. But at first it was, well, if we're not selling the ads on ESPN.com, maybe we should figure out a way to create a premium product. So I launched essentially you know, branded content before it was called that on, on ESPN, digital properties. My whole idea there was, you know what we do in print? Because I came from a print background. Um, I was like, you know, there's advertorials. Why don't we just do that digitally? So we started creating a lot of videos for the Nikes, the Jordan brand, the Under Armors, the Gatorades of the world, where we did product placement. And it was really, really innovative at the time. It was, it was really cool and it was a lot of fun. But this sort of idea of, of reaching the right people with the right message just kind of kept coming you know, haunting me. And it was something that I couldn't let go. And so I I learned more about programmatic advertising, how it worked. And that's essentially how I ended up in this space. I left ESPN and ended up at a company called Data Logics, where we were taking purchase-based data. So what people were buying in store, and we were using that to create audiences to fuel into DSPs or walled gardens. So you can reach people based on their buying behavior so that, you know, Somebody, I'm a, I'm a big Diet Coke fanatic. It's, it's my vice. You know, Diet Coke can reach me and remind me to, you know, to buy it on, on a weekly basis. If Evan doesn't buy soda, he buys maybe juice. 
Coke can target him with a Minute Maid ad. And so that way they're able to be really smart with where their media spend is going. But sort of the, the it all sort of my whole career since then, and that was about a dozen years ago now, but my whole career since then is really credited to this aha moment I had at ESPN when I realized that all this data was being collected on consumers. And while maybe you don't want to use it to target people based on what content they're receiving, because there's still an element of watchdog within within journalism, but for advertisers, they should be able to use that data to reach the right person with the right message at the right time and be really smart with every dollar that they spend. And that really steered my, 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 my whole career and led me to here today. I love that story, Ben. You really hit on the core tenets of what retail media networks are built on as well. You know, our publisher, our um, articles on sports are really recipes and coupons and weekly circular and all the great products and promotions we bring to our website. That content can be curated in service of what we could call it personalization. We could call it targeted advertising, targeted content. I mean, that is the expectation of a loyalty app or a, someone logging into a, a Safeway.com. So we get to take all of your history that you laid out so yeah. so succinctly, put a little personalization and targeting on top of it, and do content and ads when we own and operate our properties. That's the core tenant of the RMN, and, and that's likely why our, our partnership kicked off so quickly and so marvelously. Yeah. And I think kudos to Trade Desk, but you're not the only one. We're seeing it at Pinterest, Meta, Google. Everyone's investing in these retail media-specific teams. So yes, they're still selling their big DSP. They're still selling their big social media platform, but they're bringing a, an a small army of, of retail experts or publisher experts, data experts to round out the offering so that folks like Dan and I, who are maybe not as savvy on the engineering ad tech side, we're great at retailers, we're great at marketing, we might need some help with automation or AI or a trading desk. Great. Here's that company now stepping in our direction, which makes it really easy to partner when companies do that. Um, and it really makes it super simple to partner on collaboration and co-designing new products. You're bringing your expertise from a whole host of things outside of Trade Desk. We're bringing our host of retail knowledge, and it just makes innovation so much simpler. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to our time in the garage, right, our whole hypothesis was, you know, Albertsons is going to grow really quickly through on-site inventory, right? People who are going to albertsons.com and all of your different banners or their apps and, and buying their their products. But traffic is, is, is finite, right? There's only so many people who are going to buy online, but the data that you collect is extremely valuable within the open internet, right? Or, or some of the, the wall gardens you reference at the Pinterest of the world, right? And so there's an opportunity both for, for you as, as an RMN to grow your TAM, right? Grow it beyond onsite and tap into the infinite TAM of, of programmatic media. There is value for advertisers, right? So that they can be really smart with their dollar and make sure every dollar is going to the right buyers and they're not wasting inventory or, or media spend against people who never buy their product, right? A good example of that is if you're a diaper company, there's 4 million diapers born every year. Why would you want to do a demographic targeting, right? Or why would you want to buy right. linear TV when you know the vast majority of people who are going to see your ad are never going to be in market to buy a diaper, at least anytime soon, right? And so if you want to only reach people who are buying diapers, you can partner with Albertsons and the trade desk and reach them across connected television, across anywhere. That was sort of our hypothesis. Yeah. And, and the third hypothesis that we had is how can we make this ecosystem smarter and, and better and more privacy safe for consumers, right? And, and, and the way that Albertsons collects consent when, you know, members are, are getting their loyalty cards or buying on, on you know, on, on e-commerce provides a really clear value exchange between consumers. And that really meshed with sort of 
our belief within identity as the ecosystem changes, right? Moving mm-hmm. away from third-party cookies, moving to a consented, authenticated internet where consumer privacy is at the forefront. And those are sort of like our three tenants as, as we built this partnership and kind of brainstormed. And it all goes back to my ESPN days. You know, when you guys come together in the garage and, and you've referenced it a few times, Ben, Evan, you were there and, and you had these three hypotheses that you wanted to test and learn and get grimy. To tell our audience a little bit about the the culture, what are the common elements when you think about forcing that bright spot, creating that innovation? Clearly, the industry was, was you had that aha moment at ESPN. Other people in the industry did as well, a la, you know, wave a magic wand, voila, we've got retail media networks. But as we start to create new iterations and evolve the industry a bit, what are those elements, those those ingredients that have to be present for innovation to occur? Yeah, I can take this one, Ben. And, start and there. Just... Start with Evan and then and Ben, chime Perfect. in, please. Speaking of, of smart people, Ben, Tam, I'm going to take a swing at this one. Total available market? Total addressable market. My Total apologies. addressable market. Thank you. Um, when you oh, talk with all, all the acronyms in the <laughs> yeah, grocery I, I space, I need to get out of the, the acronym soup. The fact that we're this far in and only one acronym—that's I mean, pretty this good. Is, this is about give me a couple of minutes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, CTV, CDP. Oh man, keep... DSP. I love it. Everybody e- does. ESPN. I'm going to say that that oh. one actually counts. <laughs> I do love that your initial mantra was to you know get you know the hockey content out to the hockey fans first. Get the exactly. basketball content to the basketball fans. Yeah, we, we get enough you know, star quarterbacks, single team, right? There's more coasts <laughs> than the East Coast, which is funny. I'm living in the Midwest, and so we don't get a lot of love for our, our local teams. But that personalized content is is key, and it is the tenant to the retail media network premise, as, as discussed. So to, to reference Dan's question, how do we bring the, the ingredients to bear? I love that analogy, Dan, coming from a grocer, and your, your background with grocery is apropos, but when I think about partnerships and putting our humble hat on to say, hey, when we leave our nest, when, we, when we're done optimizing our on-site app and site and store experience, which a retailer needs to do and own and control that, you need to leave some of that control behind. And now you're reaching over to a social platform, the open web via a trade desk. The control is given immediately, right? So we're not the one making that final ad decision. We get to control some of the creative, maybe some of the budget and strategy. But sometimes the client, in this case a CPG or an agency, wants to have hands-on keyboard, wants to be um, the decider on how optimizations should play out. You know, they've got big ideas, big strategies. And so do we need to control the whole thing? When do we, when do we hand it off to somebody smarter? When do we you know, start and stop our monetization strategy within that journey? It's the same journey as on-site, but we don't have to own every piece of the puzzle. And I, that's what really clients and agencies are asking for as retail media grows beyond just the shopper uh, relationship direct with with the retailer and CPG and into something a little bigger, right? We want to go up that funnel. Trade Desk plays a role in, in the awareness, consideration, shopper, and loyalty funnel. Retail's kind of been at the bottom historically in that conversion, shopper, e-com space. Well, all the behavior, all the loyalty, all the new customer acquisition tools that we have, we can move up that funnel and bring valuable products to an awareness campaign or to a national branded campaign. But we're not always invited to that table because we've got great big agencies who are brilliant at doing this. They've got linear TV capacity. You know, they should be in charge of some of those decisions and control. And we just need to show up with a humble product that enables a CPG brand to do better with their agency. So that ingredient is perfect, Dan. In some cases, when it's on site, we'll build that whole enchilada. We'll wrap it, put it on the plate, bring it out to your table, tell you how pretty you are. And, uh, and then I need the that. God, I need that in my life. Keep telling me I'm pretty, Evan. But on the other side, if someone's going this multi-channel, 
Maybe they want their larger enterprise MTA or MMO models to pick up performance. We don't have as much of a role to play in that space. And if we don't bring a humble, digestible, malleable product to that space, we won't be invited to play. Um, those agencies have their own on in-house teams for execution. They have their own audiences. They may not be as good as what we think a, a soft drink brand with 14 years of purchase history has within a retailer. But if we can't, within a frictionless way, get that asset over to them for um, the proper application in their process, then the product doesn't exist. So a trade desk has been a perfect place for us to take our assets, boil them down to the individual ingredients, and then pick and choose the ingredients that make sense to place on the trade desk for what we call a self-serve product. And then we have a spectrum of available services. We can do the whole thing, white glove, or we can just hand over some of our assets in a safe, clean room, privacy, uh, uh, modern privacy safe way for other experts to execute. And, and that spectrum will continue to evolve and grow. More, capi- more capabilities will show up on platforms like the trade desk as long as RMNs are willing to, to put on that collaboration hat and find good ways to get their assets out there. Yeah. So, so stay humble, stay hungry. Ben, from your point of view, what do you see as, as some of those quintessential ingredients for, for inspiration to occur? I haven't touched on this for sure, but I'm going to go a little bit deeper into it. To me, I think some of the key ingredients for, for inspiration and for innovation is really around diversity, right? Bringing people together who have different backgrounds or who can complement each other with, with different perspectives. I think if you think of the way Evan described the Trade Desk and Albertsons partnership, we were really complementary in nature, right? Albertsons had really great on-site solutions that they were developing. Trade Desk was a really good place for off-site. Evan had 20 years of retail experience. I had tremendous pr- programmatic experience and, and brand marketing experience, right? We both had sort of a common idea around privacy and, and customer centricity um, mm-hmm. and around pro- solving problems for advertisers. So we had a common framework around what we wanted to do, right? We wanted to be innovative. We wanted to solve problems for advertisers, right? Understand their, their needs and build products that met their needs. We wanted to do it all in a privacy-safe framework, but we came at it from very different lenses. And I think that to me, that's the recipe for innovation. I really try to foster that within my organization as well. If I didn't, I'd be a hypocrite, right? Given that I spent the first half of my career as, as a writer and editor and spent, you know, on the editorial side at ESPN and other publications. And then I came into the ad tech and the ad tech world was really welcoming to me. But I think that ad tech at times can be somewhat homogenous. And I think what that does is that leads mm. to doing the same thing over and over and over again. What I try to do is I try to bring people who understand marketing, understand advertising, but might have a slightly different background. Because I think if you have a slightly different background, slightly different experience, you're going to bring ideas to our organization that maybe we hadn't thought of before because we've kind of lived in this ad tech bubble, right? A good example of that is I I hired about two years ago, soon after I started the Trade Desk, I hired sort of my head of North America retail media from a large agency, right? For for years, she had helped some of the largest CPGs in, in the country kind of build out their tech stacks, build out their data strategies. She hadn't necessarily worked in retail media, but Mm -hmm. she understood what what CPGs needed. She understand the technology that they were investing in, and she had a really deep understanding of that. And so I, I thought that she could be a really valuable part of our team. And she quickly learned retail media, learned, built relationships with retailers, 
learned the ecosystem really well. And now she's known as an expert in retail media and retail data who speaks at conferences across the country. But she didn't come from a traditional retail media background. She didn't come with a huge Rolodex with, with retailers, but she had a really a great you know, intellectual curiosity. She had a really deep understanding of advertising and, and what the needs were. And so we brought her in to kind of fill out our team. I brought some people in from RMNs as well. I brought people in from data companies, but I've really tried to bring in a, a somewhat diverse organization with different backgrounds so that we can all complement each other. You know, I think that when you have overlapping skill sets, whether it's it's a team or it's it's an organization and a company, you're missing the opportunity to be complementary. And you're kind of just doing the same thing over and over. I'm going to bring sports into it one more time. I, I apologize, nice. Devin. No, let's do it. But I mentioned this earlier. I, I'm a huge Denver Nuggets fan. And, and I think one of the reasons that they won the championship, one of the primary reasons, it's not well, – it's partly because they have the best basketball player in the world today. I mean, Williams, there's that. <laughs> but the, their, their GM talks a lot about this, that he doesn't want any overlapping parts. He wants everybody in the team to be complementary, right? And so his first big trade was to trade two fan favorites within the Nuggets. So Monte Morris and Will Barden. Who, who, Will Barden was sort of a really longtime Nugget. Monte Morris was their sixth man, their first bench player, who was, who was really popular within the team. And they traded him for a player named Contavious Caldwell-Pope, who you know isn't an all-star. He's not a flashy player. But what he did was he brought a new skill set to the team, perimeter defense, that they struggled with for years. And they, they didn't have a player like that before. They had a lot of overlapping parts. They had a lot of shooters. They had a lot of offensive first players. And they really needed somebody who could you know, play defense in the perimeter. And so that helped them become a, an actual team with a, a really complimentary starting five that was the best in the league and, and won their first championship. And I think that's really important in business too, right? Build complementary skill sets. Don't hire everybody from the same place mm. because different opinions and different ideas are going to help you grow. I love that. I, and, and Ben's knowledge runs deeper than sports and ad tech, if you can believe it. He can go as, as deep and detailed into bands and concerts and venues. It's a, kind of a, a beautiful mind you've, you've got walking around over there, Ben. <laughs> well, thank you. The, uh, the, the thing that you struck me as you were talking through that, some of the biggest innovators throughout time have been cross-pollinated, educated, right? Yeah. So Einstein was a good example, but you, you've learned about this type of engineering. Let's say it's fluid dynamics. You're bringing it now to a new industry or a new discipline. And those ideas and patterns, you, you look for them in the new world, which is the unique way of trying to solve a problem. And if you've got the humble hat on, to Dan's preference earlier, uh, and you've got an ability to partner, so you're bringing in people uh, with great partnership skills as well as knowledge, that's the recipe for success. Because in, especially in retail media, we're moving beyond generation two or chapter two is how I referred it, to it in the past, into chapter three, which is this new era of in-store excellence, full merchandise support, so maybe dropping the media side of retail media and turning it into a retail CPG uh, nirvana state, bringing to bear all of those assets which go beyond just media and putting them into a, a, an annual plan that really works in service of what the customer is here to do. And that's, what, that's why we both have jobs, Ben, is to make the customer happy. That's the ultimate goal. And so to do that, man, we can't wait for a trade desk to solve that for us, right? We can't wait for a big SAP or NRF POS system, point of sale system. There's no one company out there that has ever done that before. And so we have to build it together. And that only happens through collaboration, partnership, innovation, and that humble hat wearing. It also helps when you've got folks with those other disciplines because then they can recognize patterns and bring in those other solutions that are maybe technology-based or just business-based and it makes that problem-solution 
solutioning so much more productive. Can, can I add two two terms to the hungry and, and humble? Yes, um, Those are the two, right? Hungry, humble. Yeah. Hungry, humble. Start there. So I mean, I look think at the, me. The look other at two me. I'm add, always hungry. Always hungry. Always hungry. I'm hungry yeah. now. Yeah. Um, the other two I would add would be empathetic and creative. Um, empathetic in the sense of, you know, to really solve problems and to be innovative, you have to understand the problems that your consumers are facing, right? Your 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 customers are facing, right? Exactly. So you need to have empathy for them. You need to say, okay, here's the challenge you're facing as as an advertiser in our case, or as a re, you know as a, as a supplier in in your case, right? How do I solve those problems? You have to have empathy for them, and then you have to have creativity. You have to kind of think through how to solve those problems and not just go back to what's always been done mm-hmm. because the problems that advertisers are facing today, they hadn't really faced yesterday, right? If you think of what's happening with identity loss, if you think about what's happening with new channels, if you think about just macroeconomic challenges that they're facing, right? These are, these are somewhat new challenges that they're facing. So you need creativity to think of new solutions that meet their needs, right? So the first is you need to be empathetic. You need to have a deep understanding of what they're facing, and then you need to be creative to solve those problems. And honestly, those are two of the key sort of pillars that I look for when hiring a team mm. is people who are empathetic, who can really see the ecosystem and, and th- see things through the lens of our customers, of our clients, and then creativity in solving those problems. I think that's really important. And, and believe me, you guys, when you when you talk about diversifying your team and, and having some rich backgrounds, I love it because I'm a fifth grade teacher who does marketing now. So somebody took a chance on me back in the day. I really, really appreciate giving the opportunity to bring a different knowledge base to bear on some of the the problems we have within the industry and try to solve those. And I love that you guys are optimistic, you're positive, you're waxing poetic. It's great. But let's talk to the folks that are stuck in a system where the that's how we've always done it mentality is pervasive. What would you say to them on how they could create a tipping point or, or, or jumpstart some kind of change within their organization to create the culture you both thrive in within innovation? Yeah, I think there's, there's two things I'll touch on. I think the first is to, to celebrate small wins, right? I think at times um, organizations wait till a, a huge win happens before it's acknowledged. But I think if you're stuck in a rut um, and you're, you're not innovating – it's going to take a while for those big wins to happen. And you need to keep people inspired and, and motivated. So you've got to celebrate small wins because small wins snowball into bigger wins. And then those bigger wins snowball into to huge wins, right? So I think it's really about, you know, to, to create and foster an, an organization of innovation. You've got to celebrate small wins and you've got to build upon those. But I think more importantly than that, you got to be comfortable to fail. This is something I tell my kids all the time. I, I don't think I, I was taught this as a kid as much as I, I would have liked to have been. But if you're going to succeed in anything, you're going to fail a ton of times beforehand, right? And so I think, you know, one of the things I love about the trade desk is we move fast. We build things. Not everything we build is going to be successful. Most of it will be. But sometimes things won't be, right? And that's okay because we tried, right? It's better to try and build something than to not try and to be stuck in quicksand and, and wait for, for perfect, right? I mean, it's, it's a cliche. Don't let perfect be the enemy of good. But I feel really lucky and blessed that, that the Trade Desk um, has a culture of innovation because you know we're, we're comfortable to try new things. Again, it's data-driven. We come with you know, ideas based in you know, understanding who our consumers are, um, having hypotheses around what will happen, and measuring it, having sort of ways that we're going to measure it and try success. But we we also have a, a room open for for innovation and, and understanding that sometimes you're going to fail and nobody's 
you know, like let go if you fail, as long as, long as you tried and it was based in data, that that's okay. And I think ESPN was this way as well, right? I, I led a lot of the new business um, businesses at ESPN, built a lot of new products, built new magazines, built new websites. And I love that ESPN also had that room for innovation. But I think the common denominator between the trade desk and, and ESPN is that it was okay to fail, right? Obviously, you don't want to fail, but in order to build new things, in order to have success, you've got to take risks. And if you're not going to take risks, you're never going to innovate. So I think to me, it's all about fostering a, a culture where people aren't afraid to make mistakes, where people are encouraged to, to try new things, again, within data, you know, within reason, things that are data-driven, have clear hypotheses, clear testing plans. But, you know, people have that encouragement. And then also move fast if it's not going to be success. I think a lot of people are scared to admit failure. And so mm -hmm. they keep trying to build upon things that, that just aren't working and they continue to waste time. So I think it's about being able to move fast within that failure and then move to, to something else that, 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 that will work. So I think to me, it's really celebrating small wins and then having a, a culture that celebrates and, and embraces risk and embraces potential failure and, and moves fast and innovates from it because they've built really clear plans of attack and, and um, you know, growth plans and objectives and, and such. I think that's really, uh, really smart. I think one of the things, if I can interject before, uh, before Evan adds to it, is as a former teacher, one of the things you're, you're, you're always preached to in any professional development setting is teaching kids how to fail. But, the, but what I would always take it to the next step of is, yeah, it's great. Teach them how to fail. Do we ever teach them what to do next? So that's a great you're point, allowed yeah. to fail. Cool. Now what? What are you going to do for to pick yourself back up? So uh, when you can create that environment of it's okay to fail, you know, with data, you, you, you tried in an intelligent way to do something and the failure occurred. Great. What's the next step? What do you do after that? Or you just sit and pout about it, right? So uh, I really appreciate that. And so Evan, in thinking through some of those things, what would you advise those that are stuck in that situation to do? Yeah, going to be difficult to add to uh, to Ben's answer. But I, you couple, can do it. You can we'll, do it. We'll put a couple of pieces of icing. You have a beautiful mind as well. You got it. <laughs> we'll ice that cake for Ben. The The org structure is a big part of it, and um, specifically speaking to retailers who've been doing excellent work for 50, 60, 70 years on the merchandise side and now maybe launching media networks, deciding if they're going to bring it in-house or go through an agency. I'll, I'll speak from that type of organizational structure, but it, it applies pretty ubiquitously beyond retail. But there's old businesses, there's old mindsets. I shouldn't say old. There's the way the things are being done now that, that maybe is the core part of your business value. And then insert a retail media network on top of that. It's, it's a pretty big fundamental shift in a new revenue stream, a new way of thinking. And so being able to bring an education layer, a humble education layer, you hit on it, Dan, to the other partners internally that need to support your failure or fast-moving innovation changing the way the website and app looks and feels in service of, of the media network requires partnership, education, patience, um, and a clear list of value props. So data. Let data replace ego on why this new ad unit, why this new video component needs to be there on the site. It's not in service necessarily of the retailer, but it is in service of the larger retailer goal, which is making that client, that customer, the CPG, happy. And so being able to tell their story or their recipe through a new video ad unit is incrementally valuable to both sides. But without education and, and hand-holding and fast-fail uh, mentalities, it starts to feel like a, an internal struggle, right? Some, some power struggles over control and who gets, to, who gets to be in charge of the shopper experience. 
So that being able to move past that, which thankfully Albertsons is, is packed full of, of strong partnership leadership, we've been able to move quickly. Getting outside of the organization, it really uh, is a, a plethora of wonderful opportunity for partnership that, that matches the, the, what I just described. Ad tech, agencies, everyone's hungry to come and partner and help build things together. So knowing that you don't have to go it alone, that's the other thing. So fail fast, but build together because then you don't have to maybe carry the entire load. You've got a strong partnership with Ben. He can help bring engineers to solve part of the problem. We can use a live ramp in the middle to solve part of the problem. So knowing your, let's use a sports analogy, knowing the baseball field, you don't have to put a person on every position. Maybe you're bringing the pitcher and the catcher and you're renting a couple other services through an agency and then relying on the smart people at a live ramp trade desk to, uh, to bring, bring up the other uh, rest of the team. That's how we've been able to move quick with our innovation. The, the other little components I would add to that, obviously fail fast. Yeah, pick up, pick up your ball and, and don't, don't cry for too long. There should be a celebration of that. But there has to be space to do that. So either the two models I've seen work and the one model I've seen fail repeatedly, uh, I'll start with the, the failed one, is a siloed kind of ivory tower innovation track. And usually they're cross departments within a company. They're the innovation lead. They've got the PhDs and in the theoretical best way to innovate for that industry. But without the practical application of those ideas, the ability to test within a couple of weeks, if that idea has any merit, basically will somebody buy it? That can only happen through the practitioners and the experts that are distributed across the company. So having an ability to do innovation in a distributed manner, you could call it matrixed, you could call it you know, your fun Friday afternoon is dedicated to innovation, or there's micro-innovation teams within each of the departments. Now you've got discipline and expertise and the ability to put an idea into market really quickly because that's where the data comes from. It's not through theoretical whiteboarding. It's got to get into the hands of the, the practitioners and the people who are going to say this is good, bad, or ugly, and here's how I'd improve it or here's how I would kill it and then move on to the next thing. So getting innovation mindsets into everybody, as many people as possible, or having pockets of people within the teams who drive that is a good way to bring day-to-day innovation to, to life. I really like that. And, and for our audience, just know that in the next few episodes, uh, we'll try to limit the sports analogies, but they really ring true. I mean, it's a team, <laughs> it's a team game. So I uh, really appreciate those, t- those insights from you guys on that. The other thing I would add there is don't let structure limit your innovation, right? Guess, check, and refine worked in high school math. It can work here too. So uh, <laughs> go ahead and take the reins off a little bit. I love the fail fast the the fear get rid of the fear a little bit try something if it fails okay work on it and improve it I like that so one of the things we want to do within the podcast also um, is ask our guest a couple questions uh, that uh, we'll ask all our guests throughout this podcast the first one being if you could change one thing in the industry Ben wave your magic wand and change one thing what would it be and why yeah I think it'd be a Focusing on utility, right? I think that um, our our industry is is rife with buzzwords, and in really cool new products that launch that don't always have um, utility to them. And, and so for me, one of the things that, that that I just focus on in general is again I've mentioned this before, but I, I think it's worth repeating is really start from a lens of what problem am I solving, and then adopt technology or adopt new strategies or, or innovate to truly solve those problems, right? As opposed to, you know, invest in technology that's a solution looking for a problem, right? And I think that happens so much in our industry. 
And so, I mean, you know, I, I think that's what's so special about our partnership with Albertsons, right? It wasn't like Evan and I were thinking, you know, we, we like each other. Let's figure out a way to work together. It was really this hypothesis that the Internet's changing. There's a need for more customer-friendly, privacy-safe, you know, data in the ecosystem. There's a need for Albertsons to grow beyond their on-site properties and, mm-hmm. and, and use the, the total addressable market of the open Internet. <laughs> And um, advertisers are looking to use, you know, spend their money in, in, in a more, you know, intelligent way for their, especially their brand marketing dollars, right? So how do we solve those problems? How do we build an innovation? How do we build a product that's innovative that, that solves those problems? So we really started from a utility lens, from a need state lens. Um, and that's what I would love for this industry to continue to lean toward, as opposed to start with cool technology and then look for a solution after I think for me, it would really be start with a problem and then design your solutions around solving that problem. Yeah, that's great. I, I'll use a grocery analogy here. You know, when you walk down our pizza aisle or carbonated beverage aisle, there are so many options available to consumers. Flavors, caffeinated, non-caffeinated, gluten-free. I mean, we give them a plethora of choice. I mean, that is the grocery. That's how Safeway, Jewel Osco, Albertsons, we have to operate with that shopper so hyper-focused in mind. And they want choice. They want price, choice on price. They want available dietary trends in there. They want to see that reflected in their, uh, in their grocery aisle. We do that in our sleep at a grocery store. It's a little harder to do it in the ad tech space um, unless you have strong partnerships and, and the fail-fast mentality. But that's kind of the, the required uh, business environment that we're moving into. CPGs, have the flexibility and ability to execute media in lots of different ways. If we don't have a product that meets that demand, the gluten-free crust, the dairy-free frozen pizza, um, the veg, we're just going to miss out on that uh, opportunity to partner and tell a better story with, with our CPGs. Can you still grow a retail media business? Can you still grow an ad tech business on a single vertical, a single strategy for sure? But you're not building diversity, uh, which is you're basically – moving back on sustainability because change is inevitable. And so we want products available in any avenue that a CPG finds value in and then look for ad tech partners who can help bring that to market in a safe way. So I I love – it's going back to that ingredients being turned into recipes and then being deployed in the best, safest, most productive way possible. Yep, for sure. Really good. And uh, the last question that I'm going to ask you, Ben, uh, that we want to make sure all of our guests answer because God forbid we have a little bit of fun. We're in an industry filled with not just acronyms, but buzzwords. What are the next industry buzzwords that you see on the horizon? Yeah, you know, I wouldn't say this is a new buzzword. Ooh, um, I like it. People have been using it. But I think as an industry, we're getting close to identity actually having a definition, right? But I think it's not going to be a buzzword in the sort of loaded sense that it, it doesn't mean anything. I, I think identity is going to become the center of, of almost all advertising activity, right? So if what Google says is, is true, third-party cookies are going to start going away next year, right? And, and I think a lot of people have known that's going to happen. I mean, you have to kind of be living under a rock if you're in, in, if you're in our industry and, and you didn't know that was going to happen. But uh, not many people have actually done the work to prepare for third-party cookies going away. They've kind of um, dipped their toes in the water a little bit. But there's a lot of work that's going to have to go in. A lot of new strategies are going to have to be deployed. And, and I think that that's really going to become the, the, the big focus area maybe in 2024. 
right? It's going to mean that every, every advertiser, every publisher, every ad tech company, every retailer is going to need an identity strategy. It also means that my partners on the retail data side are going to need to think about how they use platforms or, or you know, how they securely transact their data across the open internet, across Pinterest, as, as Evan said earlier, across the ecosystem. Our advertisers on the trade desk need to do the same, right? They need to make sure they can maximize their first-party data in a safe and secure mm-hmm. way that's privacy safe, right? So it's not a, again, it's not a new buzzword, but I think that the identity at large is going to become probably the most important thing that people start talking about within the ecosystem in 2024. And it kind of goes back to my point earlier about utility, right? I think this year has been all about AI, and, and AI is amazing. And it, it's funny, I think AI gets thrown around a lot as, as something new because of ChatGPT's release in the past past year and a half or so. The reality is AI has been the center of, of, of our platform of the trade desk since 2015, right? It's what fuels a lot of our optimizations. It's the co-pilot to the planners that do all the upfront planning. So AI is a buzzword that is, uh, you know, is is really been a big part of our ecosystem for quite some time. And I think identity is going to be the the, the next big thing. I love that. I uh, had the pleasure of sitting through Ben's uh, panel this week at Adweek on AI, and uh, he's got some prolific points of view on how that gets decoupled into modular pieces, kind of like that ingredient and deployed in safe, kind of manageable but controlled ways versus this it's going to solve everything all the time concept, which can get uh, can get a little uh, over-aggressive when you talk to the bigger AI evangelists out there. It, it's a practical application of that tool, just like a clean room, just like your cloud provider. Now AI's got a little more upside and a little more excitement, but it really is uh, one more tool in the tool belt to help round out that, that full package. The other thing you hit on with that identity, if you're building a house – the identity is the foundation, yep. and all these other things are nice to have: windows, you know, lofted ceilings. But that foundation, without it, uh, that that house is not going to stand. And you're right when you think about advertising in general. Identity's been a bit of an afterthought. It's just kind of worked. the The proliferation of cookies and ad IDs uh, has just been available, and now it's not going to be in a in a much different way than it's it's been at risk forever. Everyone's been having the yeah. death of the cookie. I feel pretty confident Google's. Um, delivering this time. You're seeing some deprecation already happen in DV360. There's a percent of those IDs already disappearing. Google's showing up this time with with the actual death of the cookie. I, I think it's a good thing, though. It right? is. I mean, it, it's funny. Like, cookies, third-party cookies, were never actually meant to be advertising tools, right? They ended up becoming them, and it's created an entire industry like, like, like ours, right? But to the theme of everything else we've said, the industry has evolved beyond cookies, right? You have retail media for on-site. You have connected television. You have audio. You have gaming. You have mobile, and but yet we continue to rely on cookies and talk about the deprecation of them is going to, you know, be detrimental to the industry, and and that's why I think that people need to evolve beyond them um, and really use the tools that 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 are customer safe, privacy safe, and that's why I think so many of the new buzzwords you're going to hear are going to be all around authentication, around non-authenticated solutions, or, or all around identity. Yeah, absolutely, and. Fortunately for the retailer media network fans out there, I mean, that is the core proposition of of a loyalty program. It's free. If you expect your media investment to deliver clear, measurable results, Walmart Connect can help you get there with powerful analytics and the reach of America's number one retailer. Their closed-loop measurement uses Walmart's proprietary customer purchase data to track the impact of your campaigns on sales, not just on Walmart's site and app, but also in-store. 
For some campaigns, they can even provide rest-of-market data that tracks the impact on sales at other retailers. Visit walmartconnect.com today and see how they can help make your media spend meaningful. Walmart Connect. More than media, meaningful connections. Frequent, high-fidelity identity, often online. And then we really, our job is to find safe, uh, legal ways to, to put that into market, right? Exactly. And on it. we manage and control that through trusted partnerships, and we can bring a layer of confidence to the marketer that they're talking to the right person at the right time without leveraging contextual or going taking three steps back to some of those macro level uh, strategies that that proliferated in the 90s uh, while honoring the more modern and I think good for the consumer uh, legal restrictions around consumer data I mean it's it is good for everybody except folks without first party data what, what, actually, what, what, what I think would be great is you layer in contextual, but more just to reach the right people at the right environment, right? So contextual exactly. becomes not a targeting solution, but it becomes a contextual solution, like a relevancy solution. And so if you layer on data on context, on the most premium inventory in the open internet, like CTV, it's a game changer for the industry. You guys are so smart. Like I just sit here and gain IQ points just listening, which is the whole <laughs> point of this podcast is for those listening to gain IQ points. Must and be a guys, small baseline, Dan. Cause, uh, uh, listen, the I'm, bar I'm, with <laughs> me is really low, so I'm um, all good there. <laughs> ben, Evan, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you both in studio in New York while I'm sitting isolated and lonely in Boise, Idaho, but, uh, but it's been a, a remarkable journey through this podcast today. Ben Sylvan with the Trade Desk, super thankful uh, to have you included in this first, and I'm going to say it, I know it's going to hurt on uh, on any kind of production on the back end because what if this hops out of order but this is the first podcast we've done um, and you are the premier guest that we've had on it so thank you so much for providing your insights your intelligence and, and making us better and look good but uh, thank you for being here Evan uh, travel safe of course anything you want to add to wrap this thing up otherwise I'll kick you guys into the big apple no Dan always the gracious host just uh, thank you to the listeners out there I mean, we're here to educate and uh, and get educated ourselves. So love feedback. I know Ben's a voracious learner and reader. We try to be that as well. We've got ideas and opinions, but we uh, we won't be bringing the best product to market without everybody contributing and leaning in. So feedback is always welcome. Thank awesome. you guys so much for having me. I truly feel privileged to be on the podcast and for the to have this partnership. So thank you guys. You're very welcome. And if you want just to end this whole thing out, go ahead and give it go Nuggets, even though I'm a jazz fan. <laughs> go Nuggets. The season there you starts go. less than a week from today. There All you right. go. Super excited. All right, uh, fans of the podcast, thank you for joining us in the garage. We'll see you guys on episode two where we're going to talk about taking inventory. What does that okay. mean?